is really a prolegomenon to the rest of this section in the series. Um, a prolegomenon is a fancy word for a large introduction to a, um, a new section. And so in this next section, we're going to be talking about um, how does Jesus view faith? We've looked at faith through a lot of the epistles, a lot of Pauline letters, a lot of James, and yet we haven't looked a lot of what Jesus does. And often I think Jesus' teachings are more transient in nature. You find them in action, not where Paul just kind of like, boom, 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 logic, here we go. On the other hand, Jesus is more, you see him in action with people. We're going to be looking at, not tonight, but in the next coming weeks, uh, Nicodemus, the woman by the well, Jesus eating with sinners, Jesus healing the blind, the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus, and Judas. Um, parables, we're going to be looking at parable of the soils, the wheat and the tares, the treasure in the kingdom, the first and the last, the lost and the found, the vine and its branches, and uh, perhaps we'll draw some theological summary at the end. So, um, how many of you were here when we passed out the original survey before this series even started? Okay, we, we passed out... Um, uh, the first question on there, I believe, is what is the gospel? And what would you say some of the common responses we got from that word, Joe? You did? Oh, that's right. Um, what did some of you put? What is the gospel? Just quick, simple answers. What was it? The gospel is the good news that Christ came to save sinners. Okay, anything more to put on that skeleton? From anyone? Yes, ticket into heaven. Okay. Much of modern evangelicalism has fallen into a trap, which is easy believism. How many of you are familiar with that term? Okay, a couple. What What would you define easy believism as if you've heard it before? For those of you who have raised your hand. Easy believism is the <clears throat> idea that um, it's almost like you um, belong to a party. It's, oh yeah, I voted for that. Like, it, it doesn't change your life, it doesn't change how you live, it doesn't change your thinking, your living, and your relationships in any way. It, you just, oh, now I'm a Christian. And, you know, I believe in Christ, and I believe he's, you know, great, but, you know, I'm, you know, I try, I try not to, you know, do as many bad things, but there's not much of a life change. Yeah. Um, I would say that it's also, it's like a label that is um, heavily based on knowing facts, okay. right? So it's like, I'm a Christian because I believe this set of things, right? And um, you know, so you can, you can name off a ton of stuff, but it's, you know, the, when you say that you believe them, it's almost like a half-hearted truth because if you truly believe them, then your life would look a little bit different. But it's like, um, you know, it's kind of like what Ethan was saying. It's like that ticket into heaven because you believe this set of items or this set of facts. Yeah, so I would say that easy believism in a nutshell chalks faith up to belief in bare bones facts. Simple doctrine, it's almost a reductionism. You take just these set of things and boom, that's what faith is, believing a set of facts. Now from what we looked at in James last week, why is just believing a set of facts, a doctrinal propositions faulty? Why is it how would you summarize what we learned from James last week? Two weeks. Sorry. Yeah, that was not James last week. <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it does tie into last week, too. Um, you talked about knowing God versus knowing about God. Okay. Yes. James specifically, what did he, what was his view on somebody who just knows a bunch of facts and then doesn't have any life to back it up? Even the demons believe in trouble. Absolutely. And so that person in that case um, wanted like, hey, I believe that there is one God. And she quoted a verse and James responded, even the demons do believe and tremble. And in a similar sense today, we see modern evangelicalism fall into this pit of one, two, three, repeat after me sort of prayers. You believe that? Cool, you're, you're saved. And that's not necessarily wrong if your heart's in the right place. But if you're taking James' teaching and applying it to today, if there's no life to back up those claims, then you have right to question the genuineness of that faith. And if, uh, if you guys weren't here a couple weeks ago, we have the tapes from, from two weeks ago. Many would then assert that, in turn, imposing Christ's lordship into salvation is a heretical bit of nonsense. And why, why is that? Why do you think that is? Why do you think people, when they hear that people must submit to Christ when they become a Christian, why is that almost repulsive to some people? Yeah, Chloe. Uh, because salvation isn't based off works. Okay. And so if, if you know and believe that, then the fact that you have to do anything mm-hmm. is like, well, that's not how it's supposed to go. It's supposed to be this free gift, which it is. It is. It is. Um, and that doesn't change. It's just the works are the evidence of that. Right. And I, I mean, we've covered in detail um, through going through Romans, for those of you who have been here through this whole series, that we strongly affirm that it is not through works. I agree with that. Yes. Um, I think that a lot of people, if they hear that, then they think that it is taking their freedom away. Or um, a lot of people have the mindset that they have a lot of rights, um, which if you look at it biblically, nobody actually has any rights to anything. It's actually more responsibilities to a lot of things. Um, I can talk about that for a long time. But, um, you know, but it's like this idea that if you have to do anything, then you're no longer... <laughs> free, right? Like, it's the it's the American ideal that it is normal that you have all these freedoms. Like, in different countries, they almost take to this idea more easily because they're used to having, like, a dictator or a king or somebody that they submit to. But for us, it's like, don't you dare impose on my freedom. Otherwise, like, we're going to have some issues. And so I think that it feels very restrictive to a lot of people. Yeah. Fear of deprivation. Deprivation of what, specifically? Yeah. Versus what God says that He would do in your life. Yes, um, I was listening to one of my friends, and he he was at a crew conference not too long ago. I huh, name dropped. Look it up. Uh, he had this presenter got up, and there were three chairs on stage. Chair number one, somebody who's in total rebellion to God, not a Christian, absolutely not. You know, nothing to do with the faith. Then they had chair number two, somebody who is, um, you know, professing Christian, lives their life as a Christian. And then this presenter went on to present option number three, somebody who is genuinely saved but displays no real fruit in their life. They aren't necessarily producing anything. They aren't necessarily showing that they're following Christ in any way. That's the chair number three, supposedly, that this man was presenting. And, I, and so I pose to you that question. Do you believe that chair number three 
exists? It's almost the same question stated differently, but does such a chair exist? No. I, no? no? Why do you say no? If you're truly saved, truly, like genuinely saved, I feel like you're going to do something about it. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and I mean, they, everyone goes through lows in their faith. Of course. Which is understandable, but that's a time period. It's not the whole thing. Right. If it's true, like genuine salvation of the right salvation, I don't feel like that's a possibility. Okay. I mean, I feel like it could be a time period for sure, but not like... And you'll notice so far that I have left out proof text, which is very different. I normally have a lot of verses to go with everything. However, again, I go back to the beginning. Tonight is a prolegomena. This is an introduction to looking at Jesus' teachings macroscopically and saying, did Jesus ever see faith as something that you can just have and then not do anything about? Does share three really exist or is it one and two? And so I really haven't tried to pick out proof texts, like, you know, one, two verses, because I want to look at the stories. I want to look at the, like, ten verses, Jesus' interaction with people to see whether or not we think, that's, we think that that is there. And I mean this seriously. This is, a, this is not just theological trivia. I mean, there are plenty of things that are theological trivia. I was talking to Hayden, um, and we love, we love to debate about things here, but if there is one thing that, I, that is my hill to die on, I would say it is the tests and the knowing of genuine faith. Because, I mean, what really could be more attractive to Americans in our consumeristic mindset, a Jesus who you can accept and then not have to do anything about, you get a, you get a, a deity on your side to give you more good things and yet you give to, get to live the exact same way you were. That's not exactly a repulsive Christianity to anyone here in America today. However, if it's less about accepting Christ and more about forsaking all and following him, that's going to be a little less attractive to Americans because we're bent on what can happen for me. It's, um, I mentioned this at the campfire the other night, it's more therapeutic deism. Would anyone be willing to share what I mean by therapeutic deism? Yeah. Just kind of like uh, subscribing to a system for the same reason you go to like yoga class, just getting stretched out and feel great. So you subscribe to this kind of system thing and you're just going through it so you can get those benefits. Um, live the positive life and, you know, get, get what you want out of it. Yeah. Basically, therapy, deism, split into two words. You get, you get a moral high because you feel that you have some extraterrestrial being that approves of what you're doing, which isn't necessarily the Christian God who is angry with sin, angry with the wicked. That's not the same God. And so tonight I wanted to really, um, when we're starting to talk in a, starting this discussion about Christ as Lord, us as subservient to him, I wanted to define more terms um, before we jumped into those examples because I thought it was expedient to be on the same page. When we say Lord, what do we mean? When we say master, what do we mean? When we say bondservant or slave of Christ, what do we mean? And so I wanted to start there. Um, let's look at Romans 10.9. This will be where we'll jump off for tonight. 
Um, Paul does not say that you can believe Jesus Christ was a good guy and you're saved, which is a lot of what you'll hear preached today. If you just, you know, just believe, it's not about forsaking all and following him, which is used in scripture actually, and just accepting Christ into your heart is not used in scripture much. Romans 10, 9, right inside of it, has this common verse that we would use for accepting Christ into our heart is the very verse that says we must accept Christ as Lord. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That Jesus is Lord. And I think we often think about that in terms of like, I don't know, like what do you, when you hear that verse without, without focusing on the word Lord, what is your main focus from that verse? Like if you're not focusing on his Lordship, what, what would you tend to gravitate towards in your interpretation of that verse? Tend to put emphasis on belief in your saved. Okay. And that's not wrong, but I'm saying we often miss the object of belief. <clears throat> You can believe all sorts of wonderful things about God. You can have it exactly right like the demons do, but if you don't submit, that's an entirely different thing. Um, I found this verse very interesting. Um, oftentimes, as, as a matter of fact, as I've talked about this in preparation for this moment, um, I've, I've come across a few people who have been like, no convert to the faith is going to naturally understand to acquiesce, to accept the lordship of Christ in their life. However, that is not a biblical position. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. The Holy Spirit um, has numerous ministries in the life of a believer. However, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is that because of his residing in us, that's the only reason that we'll recognize him as Lord. 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Uninformed, I'm sorry. You know that... When you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So no one says he's accursed if you have the Holy Spirit. No one just hates God in the Holy Spirit. And also, kind of said in the opposite side, no one says that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. And Romans says that anyone who is a Christian has the Holy Spirit. So, by logical deduction that Holy Spirit who resides in all Christians will profess Christ as Lord in all Christians. There's a couple different words translated as Lord. Largely, they're synonymous throughout this. Um, however, I, I think it'd be good to define it um, through, through kind of uh, looking at the syntax of that. However, before we get into actually like what those Greek words mean, what would you define in your own words? To you, what is a ward? I mean, you can think of it in med medieval terms, medieval, if you say it, I guess, but medieval terms and biblical terms, what do you think of when the word ward or lordship over your life, what does that conjure up in your mind? Um, so this is going to sound weird to probably all of you. Um, in my music history class, we've oh, been yeah. looking at medieval music mm -hmm. and one of the main sacred music was preserved um, 
secular music wasn't in this time period before the Renaissance. And one of the most famous um, sacred pieces that was preserved was called Kyrie. Kyrie is a word meaning Lord. And so um, when I think about Lord, I think about Kyrie. The melody runs through my head, but I, I think of the the words in, in the piece and how serious the people before the Renaissance, I guess, the medieval ages were about Christianity um, as we not necessarily know it today because it was so so different back then, but yet it's still the same, it's coming from the same, the same words, learning like that the roots of this Christian practice um, where they sang Kyrie, Kyrie um, was from Judaism, so like, I don't know, that's what I think of. Other thoughts on word? Um, so I, I usually think of um, the feudal system either um, France or England um, England was not as bad as France <laughs> they didn't have people you know, literally chopping off people's heads for decades um, but that's neither here nor there um, but the lord of the castle um, you know, they had life or death over their serfs. Mm -hmm. um, they dictated how much produce the serf had to make and how much produce the serf had to give to them. Um, they, had, um, they dictated if they went to war. They, they basically ran everyone's life um, and dictated how everything had to be done in their domain. So where they were lord, their word was law. And did you have something to add to that? Just when I was younger, I didn't really understand that concept just because I heard, like I just never thought about lord as being an authoritative term because I always heard people say, you know, in prayers or whatever, lord, you know, etc. So I thought it was just another name for God. So. It always confused me when they made those statements, Jesus is Lord. I'm like, yes, Christ God. <laughs> you know, Christ, Lord, is God, and Jesus. And stuff. <laughs> but then I, I eventually saw, like, the authoritative aspect of it. And as they've explained, you know, the, the, Lord, the Lord of lands in the medieval sense, and mm -hmm. just the overall headship of it. Yes. I recently um, did a study on the names of God, okay. um, and Adonai, it was um, Lord, Master, Owner, Ruler, Captain, the one to whom something belongs to and has the power to decide, control, determine, release, bind, regulate, protect, and provide. Yeah. Um, let's go ahead and look at John 13, 13. Kyrios is the Greek word for Lord in this um, in this verse. Um, and then Jude 4 uses both uh, despotes and curios. Uh, John 13, 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so I am. Jesus says, yeah, you, I mean, that's in context of, I believe that's in context of the rich young ruler, and we're going we're gonna to be touching on that because that is probably the most evident time where Jesus is like, yeah, you've got it. Now, are you really ready to follow me? And we're going we're gonna to get into that a fair amount, but it almost appears as if Jesus discouraged him in some ways. 
um, which is a, is a weird concept, and I'd like to highlight that later on in this series. Uh, Jude 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Master and Lord, Despotes, Curios, same same idea. Um, they're very similar in definition. Um, Curios means sovereign Lord, Despotes means absolute Lord. It's the same idea. You know, you use English words; they overlap in definition often. Same thing in this case as well. One thing that's always entailed inside of a lordship relationship is what then. What always comes with a Lord? If there is a Lord, there is a slave. Absolutely. And Jesus would probably, I, I don't necessarily like doing that, by the way. I don't like just like, saying Jesus would say this because he was, he was crazy, <laughs> dude. Like He would just be like exactly what you wouldn't expect. However, this is a very similar situation in Luke 6.46. Um, this is somebody who claimed that Jesus is Lord, but refused to in turn acknowledge their relationship to him as slave. Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? He's like, you literally just, you called me Lord, and then you didn't do what I say. He's like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Duasisiu Christo. The word doulos, which is a Greek word for slave, is used over 130 times in the New Testament and is often used in reference of uh, Christians and their relationship to Christ. Uh, consider 1 Corinthians 7, 22 through 23. This passage discusses how those in slavery find freedom in Christ and those who are free in Christ find slavery. It's kind of paradoxical, but those who are enslaved in this life to an earthly master or are in a tough situation, when they come to Christ, they find him so freeing. And those who have experienced nothing but freedom and richness and wealth their whole life, when they come to Christ, they now have a new sovereign Lord and master over their life that they've never experienced before. So it interestingly highlights the differences in perspectives based off of our subjective experience. First Corinthians seven twenty two through 23. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. You are bought with a price. Do not be the servants of men. Now, to kind of flip the coin from defining what Lord is, how would you guys decide define slavery, slave, abject slavery, kind of all those terms that go with that, duos. How would you define that term based off of our perceptions of slavery? One who is owned by the Lord, who has to do whatever the Lord says, who has to, um, regardless of what they do, whatever the Lord says goes. And so if um, back whenever slavery was an issue in America, um, you know, there were some slaves who had a loving master and their, or Lord. And the Lord would, you know, be kind to them, still require them to work, still require them to do things. Uh, but they were more willing to, had a more willing spirit. Um, and so it is interesting, the d dynamic of different types of voids um, and how a slave can either be gracious for his Lord or go against him and 
um, still have to do what he says but go against them and be suffering. When I think of slavery, I think of being stripped of freedom and having having to follow someone else's will, not being able of your own. Okay. Anything to add to that beyond that? I think it's hard and maybe even impossible to consider ourselves slaves of God because we have free will. We have choices. Slaves don't have that. I mean, of course, they can like go against their master or whatever, but like, I find it hard to use that as a defining term just because we do have a choice. Okay. We're allowed to have a choice, but what we do with it. We can choose to follow and we can choose not to. But I think with the choice of the free will, I think it's hard to define ourselves as slaves. I think this is kind of going off of what Josh said, but um, slavery was, it's changed a lot, like the types of slavery that exist throughout time, um, to the point where like there's still slavery now. I mean, you know, that's part of the reason why the Hope Center exists, right, is because there's still people in slavery. Um, but it's a very different kind of slavery than what was, you know, fought for during, um, you know, during the Civil War. And just, you know, there's, like, if you go way back into Bible times, a lot of times, like, there could, like, there were masters and, you know, lords who treated their slaves very poorly. But even back then, it was almost a good thing to be someone's slave because that meant that you had food, that meant that you had clothing, that meant you had a place to stay, and it was almost like that was your your employer, right? And you know, so you would go and you would work for somebody and you would serve them, um, but they were still kind to you. Um, and so it, it's it's hard to use, I think, in our vocabulary now, when we say slave, there's so many different ideas that come to mind because you're like, or is it somebody that's being trafficked? Is it somebody who's picking cotton in fields? Or is it somebody who's yeah. you know, working for a master? So you have, you have to take all of those into, into context, but then realize that you know, the, all the times in like, biblical context, when they say the word slave, it's very much in the context of you know, the master was, was typically kind of like a loving person. You know, he was kind to his slaves when they, when they followed what he wanted and when they followed his commands. It is, um, it's almost insane how much we don't like the idea of slavery. You said it's very, very hard to get our heads wrapped around the idea of slavery to Christ. We would rather use a politically correct phrase, accept Christ into your heart rather than become slaves of Christ. That sounds much better. And it's been a revolting concept for a long time now. If you look at most of your translations, you will not see the word slave. You will see the word bondservant because that has a nicer ring to it. <laughs> Even go back to the 1611 translation, KJV, they, didn't, they weren't too highly keen on like, I don't know, I don't like that word slave. And so the political agenda of the day, if you look it up in the KJV, you're going to find the word bondservant. Why would you say that slavery, being slaves to Christ, to translators throughout the ages, and to us right down to today, why is that such a revolting concept to the very core of our being? Because we really don't like that. We really don't seem to like it. Uh, maybe it's because we're used to human <clears throat> masters, not God as a master. Okay. We don't like not being in control. Okay. I, I, I would say there's an interesting tie to pride on that and the cruelty of human leaders, yes. Some of the people that 
hated slavery the, slavery the most in America owned slaves. And so it was the people who weren't in slavery. And were like, no, this is a horrible thing. And they didn't want it because they were used to being the Lord of their life. And so, and yes, the people those in slavery didn't, you know, weren't that rejoiceful in their situation. However, um, for those that did have good servants, you know, they were, they were thankful for that. But, you know, it's usually the people that are, that think that they have some sort of control in their life um, that buck most at the idea of slavery. Slavery has a completely negative context. We hear it, we think bad things, mm -hmm. we think horrible things. You're a slave, you're not happy. You have a horrible life. So Everyone think, in their sane mind hates slavery. So I think they want to change it to make it more, less of like, strip of your freedom, you're going to have a horrible life. Yeah. They want to make it sound more pleasing because no one hears slavery and gets excited. You know what I mean? Mm -mm. Nobody <laughs> wants to sign up for that because humans have painted it. Absolutely. Yet, on the flip side, Scripture often presents this as our highest calling in life, is to become doulases, or slaves of Christ. Um, we are purchased by the blood of Christ, Romans 5, 9 through 10. Romans 5, 9 through 10. We are owned by our master, Romans 14, 7 through 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, and Titus 2, 14. And we are congratulated and rewarded by our master, Matthew 25, 23. Romans 5, 9 through 10, we are purchased by Christ's blood. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Owned by Christ, Romans 14, 7 through 9. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Lord both dead and the living. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. For do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And Titus 2:14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his own, eager to do what is good. And finally, we are congratulated by our master, uh, Matthew 25, 23. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. And so often this idea of slavery has been dropped from the vocabulary. However, it was typical of great, um, in this case, men throughout Scripture, but men and women who have identified as slaves of Christ. Um, consider these introductions to books. This is how the apostles defined themselves. They could have defined, I mean, it's, pretty, it's a pretty cool title to be like, hey, I'm an apostle. But... Paul, when he, in 2 Corinthians, he's just like, I really don't want to do this, but you guys are like making me. I'll, bra I'll brag according to the flesh, whatever. Fine, I have to prove my apostleship. But each of them were very set on understanding themselves first, primarily, and foremost as slaves of Christ. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, James 1.1, 1, 1, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Titus 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Jude 1, and Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. Doesn't matter. Oh. 
Go ahead. Doesn't matter what order. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Called to be an apostle, a second to his slavery to Christ. James 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered amongst the nations, greetings. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Titus 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and our apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, then an acknowledgment of the truth which accords with godliness. Second Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, the servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And finally, Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which uh, God gave him, him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So what does Jesus say regarding the role of doulos and the master? There's a common verse that you, I mean, you've all heard this verse. It's nothing shockingly new. However, it, when we, when our translations often say servant, bond servant, I mean, every one of those were like servant, servant, servant. You didn't hear slave once out of that, but that's what that word means every time it's said. What does he say regarding this? A look at Matthew chapter six, verse twenty-four. It says, "You cannot serve two masters." It's from the root doulos. You cannot be a slave of two masters, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's like the duos kind of idea was put into a verb form. You cannot duos two masters. Either you're gonna love one and hate the other, etc. and so the verse goes. Um, he goes on to say that you must forsake your life completely, which is rather antithetical to what we would normally assume. Uh, Luke 5.32 and Luke 14.25-35. These are long passages, but I want you to keep checked in because we're going we're gonna to revisit these, but I just want you to kind of hear them real quickly glossed over so that when we come back to it, it makes a little bit more sense in context. And then Luke 9.57-62. Luke 5.32 first. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Boom. Repent. And we started to discuss that a little bit. Luke 14.25-35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to be a tanner, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who see it, begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? 
And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's very interesting, too, because he basically says, if you don't count the cost before following me, it's going to be a mockery to people who see it. You started and then you didn't finish. And I have to say that that's pretty accurate. For people who start strong and then quickly you know, nosedive off, it, it's you know, kind of a laughing stock to the world in a way. Uh, Luke 9, 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds have the air, and have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his hand. To another he said, Follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury the, their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the pillow will and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Sold out. That's what defined disciples of Christ. That's what he demanded, as a matter of fact. He wouldn't have anything less. He kind of turned away people. He, not kind of. He turned away people <laughs> that weren't ready for that kind of commitment. It's interesting because often in, I think in Noble Desire, we replace um, slavery with the terms personal relationship with them. That's not wrong. We should have a personal relationship with them. However, when we think of personal relationship with Christ apart from slavery to him, that is a dangerous place to be. It's very interesting to think about it. It's such a broad, generic term. While Jesus was on earth, all the disciples, including Judas, had a personal relationship with him. Satan had a personal relationship with Jesus. But not everyone was his friend. Not everyone was his friend. John fifteen fourteen. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master's... Oh, wait, sorry, that's 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Only those who place themselves in subjection to his lordship were his friends. That's pretty straightforward. Now, here's the graciousness of God on display. And this is one of the coolest aspects of slavery to Christ. Slavery to Christ is not painted as a drudgery, but rather, through the rest of this passage, he says, verse 15, verse 15, go ahead and read that. No longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business instead I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father I have made known to you it, it's interesting because he doesn't negate the relationship of slave and master he says but I no longer call you slaves because you know what I'm doing you, slaves execute blindly they, they do they, you, know, you say jump and they say how high they don't ask why, they do it. But Jesus has given us a lot of insight into why he's doing what he's doing. And by the way, if you, have, if you ever are an employer of some sort, let your employees know what they're doing. That's just a nice thing to do. But anyways, sorry. Um, 
Jesus is so gracious to us because he lets us know what we're, what we're on board for here. And that doesn't negate anything, but you add another title. And the example that I think is most apt, and I was talking to Chloe about this one time, Joe and I have been best friends for, you know, many years now, but there came a point where she became my girlfriend. That doesn't necessarily mean that she's no longer my best friend. It just means that she added a new title. And in the same way, we were, thank you, Jared. I appreciate that face. Anyways, um, <laughs> we are slaves to Christ, but we also get that glorious addition of becoming friends when we subject to his lordship. Um, let's go ahead and read in John 15, 16 through 17, continue on. You did not choose me, but I chose you. There we go. You. Okay, hold that. <laughs> <laughs> Lest we get any pride going here, it wasn't that we were all like, oh, yay, Jesus. It was like, no, I chose you. I wanted you. That's why you're falling. Continue on. <laughs> so that you might go and bear fruit. That will last, and so that that will last. <clears throat> Sorry, okay, go ahead. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command: love each other. So, for those who say, "Oh, they started out strong and then fell away," there's a parable about that, and this verse provides a little bit of interpretation. Permanent fruit. It's going to be. I mean, you go down, you you fail miserably. But the trend is always upward. We're bearing permanent fruit as Christians. Um, and then verses 18 through 20. This, is to, this shows that we are no longer, this isn't a buddy-buddy friendship with Christ in a way. There is still lordship. There is still servitude to him because we are not greater than him. Verse uh, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Doesn't deny that there is slavery. He's just saying it's not half bad. You're going <laughs> to love it. It's going to be the best thing ever. Back to this question, and this is where we're going to finish. Because we've talked about people who are enslaved the entire time tonight. It doesn't seem as if we've addressed this question at all. I, I sat down and um, got on a philosophical kick a few weeks back. And I, I started pondering that question, what is freedom? And kind of the dictionary definition that I came to, as we would normally perceive it, is freedom is the lack of coercive influences over our will. Does that make sense? So there's no coercive influence driving what we do or do not do. In the case of a slave, they, don't, they have absolute coercive influences over their will, demanding what they do. As I thought about that more, I was like, when, in, when is that definition ever going to be true? When is our will absolutely 100% free from coercive influences? 
And I, I realize that that definition, though perhaps technically correct, is functionally improper because we never experience that. Even as Americans, we're not, our will is not exactly free. You are hungry, you have desires, you have preferences, likes, dislikes that drive what you do. You are not even free from yourself. Your own being drives what your will does. Take it one step further, logically, God himself is not free according to that definition. God can't do just whatever God wants to do. God has a very nature which drives his will. Does that make sense? So God is, his will is coerced into doing things by his very nature. Does that make sense? I'm seeing like two people nodding their heads. What, does that not make sense? Does that not make sense to anyone? No. What doesn't make sense? No, no. It, it doesn't, <laughs> not, it doesn't not, not make yeah. sense. <laughs> Double not, negative yeah. positive. <laughs> Only in English. <laughs> this is also true in the moral realm. We are never free from coercive influences over our will. You think back to Adam in the garden. He was pretty perfect. He didn't have anything internal governing his will, coercing his moral being into doing anything. There had to be an external temptation. However, he did us a favor. He did us a real nice one and plunged us into sin. Nice yeah, it was great. It was a great time. And I believe this bears out biblically because naturally we are in a state of servitude and bondage to sin. John 8, 31 through 36. Jesus states things a little bit differently than Paul does. We'll get to Paul. I think Jesus is illustrating the same point. Catch the parallels between what Jesus is saying here and how Paul says it in the next passage that we'll look at. John 8, 31 through 36. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold my teaching, you really know my... You are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be set free indeed. So we see that by abiding in his teaching, we are truly his disciples. And by being true disciples, we are then set free from sin by the truth. Um, Paul says the same thing over in Romans 6, 15 through 23. Romans 6, 15 through 23. It says, What then? Are we to sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 
For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So what Paul's saying there is that when you were in sin, you were 100% free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have righteousness as a coercive influence over your will. However, when you um, became a slave of Christ, which is more accurate to the terms used in that passage, you became set free from sin and now slaves of righteousness. And so to answer that question, what is freedom? Freedom is thus enslavement. However, it's a very pleasant enslavement. This is the true freedom that we have in Christ is to be enslaved to him. And that's not the necessarily bad connotation because he is a good, loving master. He is a good, loving father and a friend. Doesn't negate that he is our master. As Christians, we get a head start on acknowledging this truth. Everyone, everyone, everything, every being will acknowledge this truth. However, Christians get a head start on it in this life. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's it. That's like literally the end of it all. It is, boom, everything, everyone will be placed in subjection to Christ, and then Christ, I didn't include this verse, will place himself back in subjection to the Father to complete that Trinitarian union that's found in 1 Corinthians either 14 or 15. What's awesome about this is that people recognizing that Christ is Lord changes absolutely nothing for, for God. It changes everything for them. But recognizing that doesn't do anything because us saying, oh, Christ is Lord, that doesn't make him Lord. Christ is Lord. And it's whether we are willing to accept that or not. Our saying it doesn't make him any more or less God. He is God and he is Lord. So I think that um, sets us up nicely for understanding the rest of the series. When we're in this place of like, why, why is Lordship so important? Because all these wonderful truths that we relish about freedom and yay, we get to be free from sin, he's a chain breaker, all these wonderful terms that we throw around, they're all rooted in the fact that we're slaves to him. And so that's why we can relish in those things. Would you be willing to pray to finish this out?